to direct you specifically to songs. You just seem to pick them out, and it seems to work very well with what I want to share today. Uh, let's just start by opening up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. We thank you for this time that we have together, God. We thank you that uh, we're able to gather uh, both online and in this building, God. We just ask you to open our hearts, open our hearts to what uh, you want to share with us from your word today, God, with what uh, you want to share with us through the worship, God. And we just ask you uh, to impress upon us these messages, and help us to receive them uh, with openness. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I was to ask you the question, what do you Christians believe about God? How would you answer It seems like an overwhelming question. Would you concentrate on the characteristics of God, maybe? How God is loving, caring, as we just sang about? Maybe you would emphasize his holiness. And maybe instead you would focus on his sovereignty. And what about the more complicated characteristics that we know of of God, such as him being described as a jealous God, Instead, maybe you would focus on the more philosophical side of things. The fact that he is eternal, without beginning and without end. That all things were created through him. Or maybe the fact that his existence allows for such things as absolute morals and logic. And then there is a more theological approach to things. His relationship to us is his creation his relationship to Jesus, his relationship to the Holy Spirit, and how the Trinity works and can be understood. Or how he can be all-knowing while still allow us humans to have free will. Needless to say, when Brent went over the topics for this series uh, that we have started and asked if I'd be willing to speak on what we believe about God, my head kind of spun. You see, while the topic itself is of no issue to me, the broadness of the question for a single message was something that I questioned. As I'm sure you would agree, the question of what we believe about God could in and of itself be a sermon series on its own. To take it one step further, some scholars and philosophers have devoted their entire lives to studying this topic. The subtle nuances of that question and not completely examined or exhausted all of it. New Christians can especially find this question uh, daunting and questions like it. And therein lies one of the ideas that I think it's important to understand uh, when we look at and examine questions such as the one we're looking at today. We must first understand that God is an infinite being and transcends our human finite knowledge. We won't always, or even at most times for that matter, understand why or how something works. However, just because we do not fully understand does not make something less true. Take, for example, complex mathematics and its application to aerospace engineering. Sounds complicated, right? Well, I would hazard a guess that very few, if any people listening here, and online have a good grasp on rocket science or the physics 
and complicated concepts to go along with it. That fact, though, doesn't make it any less true that engineers have designed and successfully launched spacecraft into outer space, landing humans on the moon, robots on Mars, and numerous satellites and probes that have traveled throughout our solar system. The other thing that I think it's important to remember is that salvation isn't necessarily dependent on the amount of understanding of complex theological topics. As the Apostle Paul outlines, the new believer, like a child, starts out on milk and then moves to solid food. The complexities of our God and Christianity know no bounds, and yet the new believer is saved just as much as the learned scholar or theologian. Just as a child grows to eat solid food, we should also grow in our understanding of God and explore the complexities of our faith. As mentioned in previous Sundays, uh, to love the Lord your God with all of your mind does not mean to forever live on spiritual milk, avoiding the complex, uh, confusing, or controversial ideas about God. So with these two important facts covered, it sets a good platform for us to examine this broad question today. I'll start with a story. While I was attending Trent University, a new group on campus called the Trent University New Atheist Movement, or TUNAM, started up. I saw posters all over the campus advertising their meetings and events. Oftentimes, they would have little tidbits including, uh, uh, included on them, often decrying religion and most often Christianity. You see, the new atheist movement took atheism one step further. Instead of merely stating, there is no God, they actively attacked religion and the idea of God. The new atheist movement uh, was of the view that superstition, religion, and irrationalism should not simply be tolerated. Instead, they should be countered, criticized, and challenged by rational argument, especially when, it, when they exert undue influence, such as in government, education, and politics. Some of the movement's biggest proponents, such as Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, would address belief in God, uh, in God and religion as delusional, mere superstition, and completely illogical. These people weren't the type to just sit back and say, Sorry, I just don't believe that. Well, in one of my classes, I was lucky enough to be partnered up with one of the students who had started this group on campus. Through a few conversations, I was able to ask him why he had such a strong belief against religion and against God. He told me that he was going back to school to become a nurse. Before coming back to university, however, he had a job as a paramedic for an air ambulance service. Through his job, he saw people on some of the worst days of their lives. He saw things that people had done to others that made him angry. He saw people fighting for their lives day in and day out, himself fighting to keep them alive. And sometimes he lost that fight. He told me that after experiencing that for years, he just couldn't believe that there was some kind of all-powerful being out there because of all the pain and suffering that he had seen. He went on to say that even if there was, it was abundantly clear to him 
uh, through all that he had witnessed and experienced, that, uh, that, that being obviously did not care about us. This idea isn't a new one, and traumatic events often bring about these questions about where is God or about his character as there, seem to be, as there seems to be inaction on his part. Richard Dawkins, as I mentioned, one of the most proponent figures in the New Atheist movement, has been quoted as saying, many of us saw religion as harmless nonsense. Beliefs might lack all supporting evidence, but we thought if people needed a crutch for consolation, where's the harm? September 11th changed all that. Indeed, the results of September, uh, of September 11th, 2001, many people blamed religion for causing the horrific events that unfolded that day. Others still ask the question, where was God? How could he have let something so devastating as this that killed so many innocent people? This cycle of bad things happening and people asking about God happens again and again. Since the beginning of 2020, this question has again become a common one for religious skeptics and even Christians in churches all around the world. Why has God allowed COVID-19? The disease has gripped the whole world. People have died. Economies have suffered. People have lost their jobs. People have lost their businesses. Some people have suffered mental health issues from being isolated from social situations. Why would God allow such things to occur? Well, we have some basic truths about God that we need to understand and apply first. To begin with, we know that life is a gift from God. God is the only one who has the power and the right to give life and to take it away, all according to his wisdom and plans that he has in place. We also know that, relatively speaking, life is short. It ends in death, and we will be judged by God on how we lived our lives. In the Psalms, life is described as being like a breath. As we heard read, from Psalms chapter 90, verses 3 to 6, where Moses describes God's sovereignty over life and death. It read, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. But God's sovereignty is only one aspect. Of course, we believe that God has a sovereign plan at work through all of this. This is something that we have discussed and made mention to throughout the pandemic. But we still wonder, why? The simple answer I truly believe that it's to refocus us back on God. You see, it's a good thing that we have both unbelievers and believers alike asking questions about God. Why? Well, because that means we're thinking about God. God is on our minds. We are earnestly seeking to see God in the situation that we find ourselves in. 
You see, sometimes as humans, we can become complacent. Most of us have a pretty good life here. We may have a good job that pays the bills and allows us to provide for our family. We may have a nice place to live. We may have a nice working vehicle that allows us to travel from one place to another. And you see, sometimes I think, uh, sometimes we take these things for granted and whatever other good things that we have. As easy as it is to take these things for granted, I also think that it's easy for us to give little attention and underestimate the value of the basics of what we know as Christians about God. When we as elders were discussing this sermon series, Brent stressed that he thought it would be a good idea to figure out one passage to examine for each question. You see, it would be very easy for me to use this time as a way of giving a mini-lecture on the many foundational things that we believe about God, and that's something that Brent didn't want to happen. It would be rather easy for me to have organized a long list of basics about God, listed the scriptural references, but sometimes a more limited focus is better and can emphasize important truths that we seemingly forget. So I went back to basics. One of the most seemingly basic passages I know. One which I think that if I'm truthful with myself, I've underestimated its value in explaining simple truths about what we believe about God. It's a passage which Martin Luther referred to as the gospel in miniature. So John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. And it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In the beginning of John chapter 3, we have recorded a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. At the end of this conversation, Jesus goes into an explanation which displays for us uh, the greatness of the love God has for us. A greatness uh, that the word greatness really doesn't do justice to. It's more than just the simple fact that God is love, but that God so loved the world that he gave something. He gave something for us, sinful people. You see, in the previous verses, Nicodemus was confused on how, how these things can be. That is, how one can be born again. And Jesus' response uh, was that it can be achieved through the overflowing and unabounding love of God. F.M. Lehman has a hymn about the love of God. The last verse of this hymn 
was something that he found written on the wall of an insane asylum from a man who had found the love of God before he had passed away. It read, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with the ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What does this great love bring? This great love brings the greatest of results. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When we as believers die, we will be more alive than we have ever been. When we believe in Christ and accept the gift freely given to us as believers, we gain eternal life. Take that in for a minute. The all-powerful God of the cosmos has given his own son to redeem the sinful world. A world which seemingly wants nothing to do with him. A world that questions his plan at every turn. What a love that is. And the only condition for getting this gift is that we believe. In my study for this message, I found an intriguing illustration for verse 16, and it goes as follows. God, who is the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, that whoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest attraction, should not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. What a wonderful thing to think about. In verses 17 and 18, we read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, in, believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here we have described that Christ did not come into the world to judge it. Although he didn't come to judge it, we read that judgment does come through Christ. Herein lies another important and basic truth about God that we see illustrated in these verses. God is just. 
And because God is just, he can't just forgive sinful people without payment for sin. This is the crux of why Jesus had to pay the ultimate price and die on the cross. And because of that payment, we are able to be declared and presented as holy and blameless, as the Apostle Paul states in Colossians. In the final verse of this portion of John chapter 3, uh, verses 19 to 21 read, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. In this portion of verses, we see that not everyone responds acceptingly to the gift that is, that is extended to them. In some of the situations and events that provoke these questions, how could God do this? Why didn't he stop that event from happening? Or even... Why would he send all of those people to hell? We forget about how the depravity of human nature and free will works with God's gift of salvation. Remember back in verse 16, God gave his son for the world. He desires the world to take him up on that gift. But that's not what happens. There are those who won't take the free gift that is offered to them. And instead, these people will attempt to justify themselves with their own works. And this justification will only fail. Interestingly enough, too, notice that the language used in these closing verses, it indicates that these people who don't like the light aren't simply just indifferent to it, but they hate it. In conclusion, we can see that these verses illustrate the great love God has for the world. A love where he gave his only son in order to adopt and redeem us, a sinful people, so that we can spend eternity with him. I will leave you with the words of Isaiah chapter 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other.